podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca. And today we have a legendary episode for you because we're kicking off the first instalment of a three-part myth and folklore series. I'm so excited. Me too. I'm so excited. <laughs> it's going to be so fun. Told you that we would make up for the two-week break. Exactly. But first, let's let's do our little catch-up. <laughs> so... How are you? How have you been? What's new? I'm all right. It's hard to say because you've actually been here this week. Yeah, so no, it's a fake catch up. I'm this like, is what, for you what all. is new? What have I done? I don't think I've really done much. I celebrated with you because... Because I finished my <laughs> master's! Yay! <laughs> Woo! Um, oh, it's a good feeling. Yeah. It's a good time. So yeah, I have time now to do things. Yeah. It's, it's insane. Are you wanting to like tell people what your dissertation was or are we saving this for a later date? Um, well, no, I might as well because it's kind of relevant yeah. to what I'm going to talk about today. So my dissertation was a kind of music memoir. So it was a series of short essays about songs um, by female confessional artists and how they how I interact with them, how they interact with my memories and just my thoughts on them in general in relation to my own life. So it was really fun to do. I'm planning to do more essays and maybe expand the project, but not soon because I've just (laughs) finished. But yeah, it's been really fun. I always talk about music anyway, so I thought I might as well make that my project. I I got to read a very wasn't like your final final draft but a very late draft mm. and I loved it I thought it was amazing oh thank you <laughs> so yeah gonna hopefully try and bring some of that energy to today's podcast um <laughs> with my infatuations but we'll get to that yeah this is another uh, a morning podcast we'll see how this goes <laughs> yeah it's a little mildly hungover morning podcast <laughs> we had a little prosecco party <laughs> to celebrate the dissertation <laughs> so now i'm drinking tea gingerly <laughs> but anyway yeah let's let's just dive in cool let's go for it Emily, what are you infatuated with this week? I am infatuated with The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller. I can't explain how excited I am to talk about this book. (laughs) She's been making notes literally all week. Literally all week. Before I even talk about this book, I'm going to do like two disclaimers. Mm -hmm. So the one is that, not quite a disclaimer, but as we just said, we're going to do a series. This is going to be a three-part series I've been really into Greek fiction and I was going to try and spread them out so there's a bit more like variety in the podcast but the whole point of this podcast is what we're obsessed with at the moment mm-hmm. so we're just going for it and yeah I wanted to start with this one because I read this I think it was June it was before we even started the podcast mm. and I've always wanted to go back and talk about it because I do think I'll end up referencing it when I talk about the other two books that I'm going to do so made sense to do it this way hopefully you guys like Achilles because he's he pops up a lot <laughs> and uh, maybe you'll learn something yeah. new also and this is a surprise for Rebecca I got our friend Stephanie to give me some of her insights for this oh, episode oh Stephanie loves this book <laughs> yeah she's the one who got me to read it and I really wanted her thoughts in here so I, I got her to write me well I told her to write me a thought she wrote me a 2500 word essay oh my god <laughs> <laughs> so I'm gonna like sprinkle a little bit throughout I've not used all of your words sorry Stephanie oh thank you Stephanie um, 
but yeah we really want to have guests on here and i really want to have stephanie on to actually talk Mm -hmm. but until we work all that out for now we've just got some of her written words yeah and the second kind of disclaimer I've got is that I'm going to talk about all of this plot, including the ending. Obviously, it's been around since ancient Greece, and I feel like the statute of limitations has run out on spoilers <laughs> on, spoilers on this story. Because normally we would never give away like an ending or a big mm. twist or big plot points, but with this I don't feel so bad about sharing the ending because I do think most people know it. I'm obviously not going to give away all the intricacies of the plot, there's loads and loads and loads that I've left out because I don't want to take the the fun out of actually reading the book. Mm -hmm. But as I said, there will be spoilers that are quite unavoidable. So this is a spoiler warning. If you really, really, really don't want to know, just skip to Rebecca's bit. (laughs) We will understand. (laughs) Okay, disclaimer is over. Let's dive in. The Song of Achilles came out in 2011 and it took Madeline Miller 10 years to write and the most sort of basic explanation of this book is that it's about Achilles' life and his relationship with Patroclus. There are lots of things I want to talk about today but what I'll first do is give as brief a description of the plot as I can because then it'll just make it easier to talk about and then we can dive into like all the literary. Just before you do that, just for anyone that has somehow missed this. Mm. Achilles is a figure from an ancient Greek myth. Oh right, yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. So like, you know, like your Homer, your Ovid, like... The Odyssey. The Odyssey, it's... Your Achilles yeah. heel. He's where that comes from. Yes. He's that guy. Go Google that if, okay. if you're not familiar. I, I will talk about him. Yeah, but, like, but I'll explain who he is, but yes, that right. is who it is. Carry <laughs> on. So, we are told this story through Patroclus's point of view. And Madeline says she was drawn to this character because he's got a relatively minor role in the Iliad, but he causes this massive ripple effect. Okay. Um, so she just found that interesting that mm. such a like small character could do this. So that's what she wanted to write about. He is a king's son who has been exiled because as a child he killed another boy. Ooh. And he is sent to live with Peleus, who is Achilles' father. Also, apologies if I say any names wrong. I tried. I really tried to look up how to pronounce them all. <laughs> um, so, Achilles' father is human, but his mother, Thetis, is a nymph, um, so he's part god. And over the years, Achilles and Patroclus become unlikely friends, then like brothers, and then lovers. And when they are around 16, Achilles is called upon to help in the Trojan War, which Patroclus is also like bound to partake in by an oath he made as a child. Okay. So that basically makes Achilles' decision for him, and he's like, we're going to go together. It's going to be fine. I like how much responsibility they're putting on children oh, yeah. in this book. Well, like... Don't fuck up as a child. He, he is the youngest, like mm. like Achilles and Patroclus as well. Like They are the youngest there. Mm. Most of them are like actual adults. Jesus. But. But there was, you know, as soon as you were, I think it was 16, mm. you could fight. Jeez. So. Carry um, on. So yeah, for anyone who doesn't know, Trojan War begins because Helena Sparta has been captured from her husband Menelaus by Paris, though she actually probably went with him <laughs> willingly. <laughs> um, and the Greeks are fighting against the Trojans to get her back. So Achilles is given a prophecy about this war. He is told that he could say no to the war and live a long and happy life, but no one will know his name. Or he can fight and he will die young, but he'll be famous forever. 
Um, and Thetis also tells him that his death will come shortly after Hector dies. So Hector's on the Trojan side. Right. And Patroclus realises that because Hector is matched by no one except Achilles, that means only Achilles can kill Hector. So Achilles spends almost 10 years of this war avoiding Hector because as he and Patroclus conclude, if he doesn't kill Hector, then he doesn't die. Ah. So he often says, like, Hector's never done anything to me, so I would kill him. And then that's just how it goes for 10 good, years. Good water. <laughs> yeah. So for reasons I'll focus more on later, Achilles refuses to fight with the Greeks for a long time. The battle is going on and on and the Greeks are dying, but the war never feels like it's coming to an end. And eventually Patroclus decides to dress as Achilles and go to the war. So the Trojans will think he's back and retreat. However, Hector kills him. And Achilles is obviously distraught when he finds out and he decides that he wants to die and be with Patroclus and he knows how to make that happen. So oh he goes <laughs> So he goes and kills Hector in revenge and he parades his body behind his chariot while circling the walls of Troy three times. And what a power move. <laughs> and soon after Paris Uh, shoots Achilles in his back with an arrow and he dies thus confirming the prophecy oh man you can't be escaping that prophecy though nope you cannot oh that's so romantic and so shit I know (laughs) so yeah so much happens in this book that I've not mentioned there are loads of like really complex like family ties and really important characters I've really brushed over but as I said those are like the kind of big things that happen which matter to the points that I want to make today and so you can get a kind of picture of this doomed love and now that I've run through the plot we can move on to talking about the writing and Miller and the relationship between Achilles and Patroclus so this is where we come to my first quote from Stephanie yay she says one of the interesting points of the book is honour and glory This was so important to the heroes of ancient Greece, and for a modern-day reader, it is really frustrating to read about. Risk your love and your whole life for glory amongst men. That was what Achilles was destined for. When he did have the chance to give up his fate and live on with Patroclus, he couldn't handle the thought of people forgetting him, the great Achilles. All I remember thinking when reading this was that he had given up love for admiration of men who had run from the same fate. But Achilles was young and bred and brought up for war, and as a future hero, taught that honour and glory above else were the most important things in life. Another thing I'd say is you know all Greek stories are tragedies and lessons therein, and man was this one the tragedy of all. Miller adding that layer of meeting the lover, making him so good, and making them meet as young boys and grow up together and try and run away from the fates while realising they couldn't, was heartbreaking. She did it so well, adding in that extra layer of emotion. I mean, I didn't really need it, thanks, <laughs> as I genuinely mourned these characters for days. <laughs> uh, but Achilles did, in the end, pick honour, and he lost everything. And it was only when he lost everything that he realised that fleeting fame, or even fame down through the ages, wasn't the most important thing. Do you know why that hurts so bad? Is like <laughs> Because he is so famous, like... You've, because it's I know it's a fiction no, mm-hmm. novel, but the but fact like that you know true, yeah, yeah you know him you know him and so it's like he's still so famous and you know that the prophecy must be true because he has got <laughs> eternal fame yeah I know oh I know. 
so yeah thanks Stephanie for like summing up the <laughs> big point of the book for me so I mentioned listening to Madeline Miller's episode of the Ezra Klein show uh, last week mm. it was my quickfire favourite and I just wanted to shout out that I got like some of the details I'm going to talk about from there so on the podcast she explained that the love between Achilles and Patroclus is well established in Greek myth but at the same time it's been kind of brushed over throughout the years okay she says she felt like she was missing something when she was reading the Iliad in high school and then it finally clicked that Achilles and Patroclus were in love and she was she said she was angry that this version of the story had been like pushed aside or watered down mm-hmm. which is why she wanted to write it to write about what she feels were the reasons for Achilles' actions and eventual downfall. And she does also say in that podcast that you definitely don't need to interpret their love in a romantic way um, like she's done, but she feels that it makes sense in their story and that's obviously the story that she has had them tell. Yeah, and there's no good reason not to. Yeah, exactly. So the first quote I have from The Song of Achilles is from near the start of the book. And at this point, Patroclus has been staying with Achilles for a while and he's become a a companion to him and they now share a room. And this quote is about that gradual feeling of being able to open up to someone and that like slow learning everything about Mm. someone. It's very beautiful, as is all of her writing. Emily might cry during this I genuinely, I feel like there's like tears in my eyes. You you look like you're about to cry. (laughs) Right. If there's any mad cuts, it's because we had to stop. Yes, yeah, because I had to stop and stop. Okay. Slowly, I grew used to it. I no longer startled when he spoke, no longer waited for rebuke. I stopped expecting to be sent away. After dinner, my feet took me to his room out of habit, and I thought of the pallet where I lay as mine. At night, I still dreamed of the dead boy. But when I woke, sweaty and terror-stricken, The moon would be bright on the water outside and I could hear the lick of the waves against the shore. In the dim light, I saw his easy breathing, the drowsy tangle of his limbs. In spite of myself, my pulse slowed. There was a vividness to him, even at rest, that made death and spirits seem foolish. After a time, I found I could sleep again. Time after that, the dreams lessened and dropped away. I learned that he was not so dignified as he looked. Beneath his poise and stillness was another face, full of mischief and faceted like a gem, catching the light. He liked to play games against his own skill, catching things with his eyes closed, setting himself impossible leaps over beds and chairs. When he smiled, the skin at the corner of his eyes crinkled like a leaf held to flame. He was like a flame himself. He glittered, drew eyes. There was a glamour to him, even on waking, with his hair tussled and his face still muddled with sleep. Up close, his feet looked almost unearthly, the perfectly formed pads of the toes, the tendons that flickered like lyre strings. The heels were calloused white over pink from going everywhere barefoot. His father made him rub them with oils that smelled of sandalwood and pomegranate. He began to tell me the stories of his day before we drifted off to sleep. At first I only listened, but after time my tongue listened, I began to tell my own stories, first of the palace and later small bits from before. The skipping stones, the wooden horse I had played with, the lyre from my mother's dowry. I am glad your father sent it with you, he said. Soon our conversation spilled out of the night's confinement. I surprised myself with how much there was to say about everything, the beach and dinner and one boy or another. 
I stopped watching for ridicule, the scorpion's tail hidden in his words. He said what he meant, he was puzzled if you did not. Some people might have mistaken this for simplicity, but is it not a sort of genius to always cut to the heart? Oh my god! Uh, yeah. There was a vividness to him, has absolutely yeah. decked me. I know. She has this, like, it's like a really soft and gentle tone that, like, captures so perfectly how much he adores, like, this boy. But then those last couple of lines about, like, the scorpion tail and the cut into the heart, like, mm. they kind of come out of nowhere and just, like, like hit you <laughs> with, yeah. like, this force. And I think it's just genius writing. And I love as well how Patroclus focuses on Achilles' feet a lot when he's talking about him. And I wonder if it's because we do all know that story about Achilles' heel, mm. but that isn't a part of this story. And I don't actually think it's in the Iliad either. Oh. I think it was, like, a later edition. But either way, the common story about Achilles is that his only weak spot is his heel and Patroclus has this fascination with that part of his body, which I just think is a really interesting detail. Oh my god. That also, like, that's so true to life, though, that idea of, like, when he's, like, waiting for the scorpion's tail or whatever is, like, everyone knows that feeling of thinking that the person's going to want them to go away or that, like, you're going to overstay or that you're going to overstep. Mm-hmm. when you really adore somebody yeah yeah definitely and like that bit at the start where he's like i stopped like expecting him <laughs> expecting to have to leave i was like oh my god <laughs> i know it's so sweet it is so i want to talk about the scene after achilles and patroclus first have sex i actually think the scene itself is very beautiful but my family listened to this and i don't think they need to hear me read that out so <laughs> <laughs> i'm not going to fair enough um but basically, there's been this like building tension between them. This is a few years after they first meet. And they're on Mount Pelion. And Achilles is being taught how to be a hero by Charon, who is a centaur, who like teaches heroes how to be heroes. Casual centaur. Obviously. And Achilles finds out that his mother, who can normally like watch him from anywhere, can't see him on this mountain. And uh-huh. he tells Patroclus that. And they finally get together after years of like holding back and I'm going to read the aftermath of that. Our eyes met and we did not speak. Fear rose in me, sudden and sharp. This was the moment of truest peril and I tensed, fearing his regret. He said, I did not think and stopped. There was nothing in the world I wanted more than to hear what he had not said. What? I asked him. If it is bad, let it be over quickly. I did not think that we would ever... He was hesitating over every word, and I could not blame him. I did not think so either, I said. Are you sorry? The words were quickly out of him, a single breath. I am not, I said. I am not either. There was silence then, and I did not care about the damp palette or how sweaty I was. His eyes were unwavering, green flecked with gold. A certainty rose in me, lodged in my throat. I will never leave him. It will be this, always, for as long as he will let me. If I had had words to speak such a thing, I would have. But there were none that seemed big enough for it, to hold that swelling truth. As if he had heard me, he reached for my hand. I did not need to look. His fingers were etched into my memory, slender and petal-veined, strong and quick and never wrong. Patroclus, he said. He was always better with words than I. (laughs) Oh no! (laughs) 
Oh, it's just so beautiful. <laughs> the tears have started. <laughs> oh no, that's going to make me cry and I haven't even read it. <laughs> so yeah, I just love this scene because I think it relates back to that previous quote about Achilles always being honest. Mm-hmm. And this quote about being certain about your feelings which is something i argue we don't really see in romantic stories a lot there's often a lot of uncertainty yeah whereas here they both confirm that they love each other and i also really love that line about achilles being better at words than him Mm. um because obviously patroclus is the one narrating the story and it's as if he's telling us like achilles would be better at telling the story and i just think it's heartbreaking (laughs) That um that line where he's like, it will be this always for as long as he'll let me. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. It's true, you don't see that a lot in romantic stories. No. You don't see like someone being really forthright in their own head. Yeah. Because there's always this idea that like even a narrator, like a modern day narrator, mm-hmm. has all this like oh, but I need to be wary and I need to be careful for yeah. myself or whatever. And he's just like, nah, yeah, I'm in. Yeah, definitely. And I, I also want to share another paragraph just after that quote. It's the next morning. And I honestly don't have a lot to say about it other than I just think it's really lovely and I just, like, I have to read it out. It's just so beautiful. Okay. We ate, then ran to the river to wash. I savoured the miracle of being able to watch him openly to enjoy the play of dappled light on his limbs, the curving of his back as he dived beneath the water. Later, we lay on the riverbank, learning the lines of each other's bodies anew. This and this and this. We were like gods at the dawning of the world, and our joy was so bright we could see nothing else but the other. That's so pretty. I know. I think she's just brilliant at capturing, like, that feeling of romance and of the idea that you can like learn someone mm-hmm. um whether it's like their personality or or like their body and it's something that appears in a later quote as well where Achilles had been in disguise and Patroclus says this had she really not thought I would know him I could recognize him by touch alone by smell I would know him blind by the way his breaths came and his feet struck the earth I would know him in death at the end of the world I love that. Yeah, that's like one of my favourite quotes, definitely. I remember trying to write something like that once and like it's just such a hard thing to articulate. Yeah. But I love that because this is a myth, she's able to use like really epic language. Yeah, definitely. That's actually what I was just about to say. There's so much language about like life and death and the gods when he talks about Achilles. And like obviously it's the genre, like it reminds of the genre, but also just like the realities of Achilles' life mm-hmm. and the fact that he's doomed and they try and fight against it by not killing Hector and it obviously it buys them some time together but I think they both know they were doomed from the start and I think like that quote mm-hmm. is one of the ones that shows that basically. But it's also like it's great that like that genre permits that kind of like over the topness. Yeah, like, that is like that is how it feels when you really really love somebody. Mm-hmm. Like it feels epic, mm-hmm. but you can't write about it in modern love stories yeah. that way because <laughs> it doesn't fit. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So I've got another quote from Stephanie here where she also talks about their relationship and the fact that it's doomed, mm. and she brings up 
like the massive question of the book which is whether destiny can be fought against and and at what cost what really got me was miller's portrayal of their relationship it was so innocent and naive you got to watch them meet and grow up together from a young age discover their feelings for one another whilst also constantly trying to run away from achilles destiny with the fates I have to say, it got really annoying in the book to read, purely because you were rooting for them the whole time, but knew that they were doomed. But that was the belief of the times in mythology. However, for me, it threw up some interesting questions about fate. Could Achilles really not have changed his fate? Was it his fate because everyone had decided it was his, and it was the role he was meant to play? Did it have to end the way it did? Also, Patroclus. His depiction makes the ending all the more sad. Not much of a fighter, he learns how to help and heal those hurt in battle. Though he starts off sketchy with the accidental murder of a boy and is then exiled to where his journey with Achilles starts, he shows himself to be more morally sound than the great hero Achilles. However, I wouldn't hold that against Achilles, as again, he had the crushing weight of the fates resting on his shoulders, placed upon him by everyone he knew. Oh man, <laughs> Stephanie, you're really in your feelings about this book, aren't I you? I know. Man? I think she brings up that great point that, like, we're never going to know the mm-hmm. answer, obviously, and that's what makes the book both a frustrating read and a very incredible read. And she also brings up this idea of Achilles' likability. So, from my research for this episode, I found that in general, people don't really like Achilles and. By that, I mean like the Achilles from the first epic poems, not Mm. Madeline's Achilles. They find him proud and big-headed, and I think they disapprove of the fact that he doesn't fight for a long time and therefore lets a lot of Greeks die. Mm. And he also obviously kills a lot of Trojans, like a lot of Trojans. (laughs) But what Miller has done is humanise those decisions that he makes. So a lot happens over these many years in the Greek camp outside Troy, but one very important thing is the ongoing fight between Achilles and Agamemnon. So Agamemnon is Menelaus's brother and Agamemnon takes the daughter of Apollo's priest as a trophy and the priest comes to beg for his daughter back and offers him many rewards but he refuses and so Apollo curses the Greeks with a plague which just kills off loads of Greeks. (laughs) Oh god. Um, and it's all the fighters, it's not any of like the women or children or Achilles eventually pushes back against Agamemnon and forces him to give the girl back, which obviously makes Agamemnon have to admit that it was him that brought the curse upon everyone. Oh. So Agamemnon's furious that Achilles has ruined his pride in front of everyone, and so he takes Bruceus, who is the slave girl of Achilles, who is his prize from Troy. Okay. But who in this book he doesn't like use her as mm. like a sex slave or whatever like he kind of just takes her because Patroclus wants to save her at least that's the version that Madeline's told so Achilles is fucked off and decides not to fight until he gets her back that is then Agamemnon attacking his reputation right so when I talk about Miller humanizing Achilles I don't mean that she like rewrites his intentions or the actual actions that he takes but she dives into the psychology of why he would make those decisions Mm. and what she does is remind us that he goes to war at 16 Mm -hmm. he goes knowing that he's not going to come back he leaves his father behind he's basically been abandoned by his mother she only comes and sees him if it's anything to do with like being a god or being a hero he's in love and doesn't want that to end 
So I'm not saying I agree with everything he does, but I understand why he does them. Yeah, and, and you, like, root for him. Yeah, and I think that's, like, the beauty of her writing, is that you, yeah, you root for him. <laughs> He's given up everything for his reputation, and it's Agamemnon who threatens his reputation, and I think once you look at him through this perspective there is sympathy to be had for him and he's also a very honest character as i've already like discussed in previous quotes it is his strength and his fault like he has to learn that not everyone is honest like he is i don't know he's he's a character with lots of faults but i find the way that she writes him absolutely fascinating characters with faults are always more Mm. interesting (laughs) to read and I think it could also be because the book is from Patroclus' perspective and obviously he's in love with Achilles and so you feel that love mm. along with him. Um, yeah, it would, it would be weird if if you didn't because it's from the point of view of someone that loves yeah, him. But yeah. that's also really interesting because then it's like, well, is this a reliable narrator? Yeah. Because they've obviously got a bias to be sympathetic. Yeah, definitely. And like Patroclus does point out when he's wrong. Patroclus isn't totally blind to like Achilles like he he he's not always on his side which is a very interesting dynamic but yeah one thing I haven't mentioned yet but that I love about this book is it's called the song of Achilles and that is in reference to the fact that Patroclus is telling us the story through song they bond because they play the lyre together and Achilles story was first written in epic poetry which would have been performed or sung out loud it's just another like beautiful layer to a beautiful book and One of my absolute favourite things is the different ways that we tell stories. It's not just books, it's like, it's myths passed down through history. Uh, It's about like the stories we tell others, the stories with ourselves. Definitely. I just think it's great. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. So for reasons I'll leave out for like the sake of time, (laughs) both of their ashes are mixed and buried together uh, as Achilles wished. Which also, I think, if you get buried, like, with someone's ashes, like, that's not platonic. <laughs> like, I feel like there's a big hint there. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, but anyway, only Achilles' name is on the monument mm-hmm. that, like, their ashes is buried in. And so Patroclus is bound to the place where he's buried, but he can't go to the underworld because his name isn't there. <gasps> so Patroclus sleeps on Achilles' grave. And eventually Thetis comes and they end up speaking about Achilles and she tells him stories about Achilles and he shares his. And I believe the stories that he shares are the stories that make up this book, Mm. uh, which is just a lovely detail. And it also explains how we still get the story we're reading even after Patroclus dies. Yeah, because I was wondering about that. I was like, how is he telling the stories then? So like his body dies, Mm. but his soul is still there and he still sees everything that's going on like he sees Achilles like grieving over his body like Achilles sleeps with his body every night like he sees him kill Hector and he sees him die and oh oh, it's just sad but yeah as I said I normally wouldn't read out like the very end of a book but I think this quote is just amazing and I do also have a response from Stephanie about the ending so I'm going to talk about that as well cool why do you not go to him? I cannot. The pain in her voice is like something tearing. I cannot go beneath the earth. The underworld, with its cavernous gloom and fluttering souls, where only the dead may walk. This is all that is left, she says, her eyes still fixed on the monument, an eternity of stone. I conjure the boy I knew, 
Achilles, grinning as the figs blur in his hands, his green eyes laughing into mine. Catch, he says. Achilles, outlined against the sky, hanging from a branch over the river, the thick warmth of his sleepy breath against my ear. If you have to go, I will go with you. My fears forgotten in the golden harbour of his arms. The memories come and come. She listens, staring into the grain of stone. We are all there, goddess and mortal, in the boy who was both. The sun is setting over the sea, spilling its colours on the water surface. She is beside me, silent in the blurry, creeping dusk. Her face is as unmarked as the first day I saw her. Her arms are crossed over her chest as if to hold some thought to herself. I have told her all. I have spared nothing of any of us. We watched the light sink into the grave of the western sky. I could not make him a god, she says, her jagged voice rich with grief. But you made him. She does not answer me for a long time, only sits, her eyes shining with the last of the dying light. I have done it, she says. At first I do not understand. But then I see the tomb and the marks she has made on the stone. Achilles, it reads. And beside it, Patroclus. Go, she says. He waits for you. In the darkness, two shadows, reaching through the hopeless, heavy dusk. Their hands meet and light spills in a flood, like a hundred golden urns pouring out the sun. Oh, wow. Uh... <laughs> <sighs> I was, I was, I'm so happy I got through that in one go. I genuinely thought I was about to break for a second. Yeah. <laughs> I'm proud of you, well done. So, yeah. Anyway, hang the fuck on. Do you mean that if we died, you wouldn't want to get mixed with my ashes? (laughs) (laughs) I feel betrayed. (laughs) See, now you're not crying. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, so. This is what I love about this book, which is that it references the fact that it's a story being told. And I actually think it's a very clever thing to do for a work like this, which is already the rewriting of a text that's already well known. It's reminding us that this is Patroclus' story, the way he sees Achilles' life, and in a way it's Madeline saying that this is her telling of it in the way that she sees his life. So I don't know, I just think it's like beautiful, I've said that so many times, and a really clever way to end the story. And it's also, of course, (laughs) heart-wrenching. So this is what Stephanie has to say about those final lines. Was the ending happy or sad? In the darkness, two shadows reaching through the hopeless heavy dusk, their hands meet and light spills in a flood like a hundred golden urns pouring out the sun. That simile at the end sure sounds happy, with the likeness to the sun and sheer intensity of them meeting and finding each other in the underworld. But I still felt kind of hollow at the end. Is that the right word? I think it's the depersonification, am I making up words <laughs> she's written, of Patroclus and Achilles, reduced to nothing but shadows amongst other shadows, reaching out to each other in that hopeless and heavy world of other shadows. It's a bittersweet ending. I think it's actually the definition of a bittersweet ending. As time has went on, the more I'm inclined to lean towards it being a happy ending. I mean, they found each other. But maybe I also want it to be a happy ending for my pure wee shattered heart. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows? 
there's just something that doesn't sit right with me either. Are they just wisps of smoke who can't really touch each other or hold each other? How much comfort can it be? I suppose if they had never found each other, or Achilles' mother had never freed Patroclus to the underworld as well, it would have been much, much worse. And who thought it was going to be that way, by the way? I genuinely think if Madeline Miller had made that decision, I would have hated the book. (laughs) (laughs) And then she said, Actually, yes, that was the turning point for me. I remember feeling so sad and gutted over the deaths. Then when I saw Patroclus struggling to get to the underworld and couldn't even be reunited with Achilles there, all I remember thinking was, Miller, don't do this, (laughs) because that would have been even worse. So maybe I'll change my answer and say yes, it was a happy ending because the alternative could have been so much worse. Oh man. (laughs) So I've had to think about my response to the end because of this and I think I'm also inclined to say, I don't know if I can use the word happy ending but I agree with Stephanie and say it's a bittersweet one. I like to think they're together and like Miller does reference this in her second book Circe which I'll talk about more later. (laughs) Um, But Stephanie's right, like, are they as happy together in the afterlife as they are in life? I think if I were Achilles, I would also feel immense despair of choosing glory over my true love, and I wonder if living out an afterlife together is enough. Yeah, Um, or if it's worse. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's a heartbreaking book. (laughs) Like, that's that's it, plain and simple. (laughs) Those final lines about their hands like reaching for each other genuinely makes me ball my eyes out. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so proud of myself for keeping it together today. Uh, I was like legit broken after reading this book. <laughs> what what got me was the urns spilling out the sun because mm, yeah. obviously urns are like where Greek art and stories are told on as yep, well, and where they're buried, and where they're buried. Yeah. So it's like. This is the like because the urn's circular, so the story always goes on when you see like the ones with the pictures on them. Yeah. But then like them being tipped over and like pouring out the sun, like it's just something so like there's something eternal in it, but there's also something deeply broken. Yeah. About it, and like it's yeah. not right. Oh, I know. She's just brilliant. Like it's honestly like absolutely one of my favorite books I've ever read, and I can't believe like I found it this year. Like, yeah, because it's been out for such a long time as well. Yeah, I can't wait to read um, it now. Yeah, so that's kind of all I have to say today. Um, <laughs> not not there's, much. There's yeah, there's there's so much that I left out that I would love to talk about, and like maybe one day I'll return to it and like talk about the other things that I missed. Because I feel like I didn't give any female characters their due in this conversation. Which, you know, we quite like talking about female characters. We love a female character. Um, But yeah, loved it. I'm going to return to Achilles and Patroclus in upcoming episodes. So as I said, in Miller's book Circe, which I'm going to talk about next week, uh, she does mention their afterlife. So I will mention that when I discuss Circe. And they are mentioned again in another book I'm going to talk about. And... As I say, I don't think there's a right or wrong way to like look at their relationship. Obviously, everything's open to interpretation. But I think it's interesting to see how other writers have tackled the same character, especially such a massive, famous one. Yeah. So yeah, as I'm sure everyone can tell, I'm absolutely in love with this book. I know it's a very romanticised version of the story, 
but that's what I enjoy. That's what, <laughs> that's what we're here for. The name of our podcast yeah, is Infatuated. I just think her writing's gorgeous. Thank you to Stephanie for helping me out with yeah, this episode. Thanks, Stephanie. She wrote so much that I didn't have the space to include, but all her thoughts were great. So sorry, Stephanie. Hope I didn't butcher your thoughts too much by like cutting them down. But your insights were great. Thank you. Love you. And that is me. Woo! <laughs> well done. <laughs> Round of applause. Thank you. <laughs> so we've talked about myth. Time to talk about folklore. Eee, exciting. <laughs> yeah, so for my three-part investigation infatuation, <laughs> I'm going to take the spirit of my dissertation and discuss music as my text, if you like. And that music is going to be the Folklore Album by Taylor Swift. So I've mentioned this probably about every week since it dropped. Um, (laughs) It dropped about a month ago and I've been playing it non-stop. And partly just because I love her music, but mainly because unlike any other album since maybe Green Light by Lord, I find it really creatively engaging. And so I wanted to appreciate it for its like literary value in the same way that like an, any myth or folklore could be appreciated. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start with like a little meditation on the title before <laughs> I get into the specifics. Just because I think it's really interesting. We didn't plan to have topics that intersected. No, it just, it was a, uh, what's the word? It's my favourite word and I've forgotten it. Oh, serendipity. serendipity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> The word itself is defined as the traditional beliefs, customs and stories of community passed through generations by word of mouth, which obviously ties into what you were saying before about the oral tradition and the way that we tell stories. Mm -hmm. And I think that it is particularly interesting, like if you look at what we're doing, because we're talking about books and stories on a podcast and you're all listening to us. (laughs) So yeah, meta. This is also really interesting in the context of Taylor Swift's music because she's played before a lot with the concept of word of mouth storytelling. But when she's addressed it before, it's often been the form of like gossip and media frenzies over her like relationships or like celebrity feuds or whatever. Mm-hmm. And she made a whole album before addressing that and it was called Reputation. And in Reputation, she wrote sort of about and to the persona that the media had given her, which at the time, if y'all remember, was a snake. The reason that I'm bringing up Reputation is that there are really obvious aesthetic recalls to Reputation in folklore. So these are her only albums with black and white album art. She's usually quite colourful. And they're the only ones where the title is styled in lowercase. So I feel like she's drawing, like she's purposely asking us to draw a parallel between the two, mm-hmm. the two albums. What's interesting about that for me is that reputation starts at the external, like what people are saying about her and like journeys inwards to like personal self-definition. So it starts with like these big bombastic like camp tracks called I Did Something Bad and it's like this big like chip on your shoulder persona and it tapers off into like a really soft and like contented love songs and just like really self-accepting songs. So like one is called Call It What You Want. So that mm-hmm. shows the difference in tone yeah. that, that you get to by the end of that album. And so what I love is like when you when you already know all that, then folklore comes and it takes this idea of word of mouth and like half truth and it takes it from the personal to the external. Because in this album she writes not just from the point of view of herself or her personas, but from multiple different characters. So the effect that you get when you compare the two albums 
is like the two kind of facets of word of mouth made up stories. One which can be presented as fact and therefore is damaging and toxic and one which is presented as lore, as like this fable of fact and fiction which has multiple voices interacting in a way that feels really fluid and I think like just for her that shows a lot of artistic growth and that like made me think about concepts that she'd already introduced me to in a really different way. Like I love the idea of what you're saying versus the truth growing to well there's her truth and his truth and their truth and you know like I just I just thought it was like a really interesting change. Mm And Obviously, we're not going to play the songs on here because we are wary of copyright. <laughs> but um, to give you an idea of like the sound, the, that softening and the kind of opening up of narrative perspective on Folklore album really comes through in the sound. It's much more alternative than previous albums. It's much more instrumental. It's just like subtler in every way. Um, and so, yes, yeah, it's, it's taking the concepts from Reputation and exploring as an artist a more a way to create something rather than a confessional writer responding to something. I'll just sum up the difference quickly because I think it's summed up really well by Swift herself because of the way that she's introduced the two albums. For Reputation, she did a social media blackout, deleted everything, dropped the album and said, there will be no explanation, there will just be Reputation. And that was it. <laughs> that was the tagline, which, by the way, what a dope tagline. And obviously it was branding, but it it really did capture the spirit of what she was trying to do. Mm -hmm. Whereas with Folklore, there's a much more openness around it, and I'm just going to read out the introduction that she gave to the album. So she says, It started with imagery, visuals that popped into my mind and piqued my curiosity, stars drawn around scars, a cardigan that still bears the scent of loss 20 years later, battleships sinking into the ocean, down, down, down. The tree swing in the woods of my childhood. Hushed tones of lips run away and never doing it. The sun-drenched month of August. Sipped away like a bottle of wine. A mirrored disco ball hovering over a dance floor. A whiskey bottle beckoning. Hands held through plastic. A single thread that, for better or worse, ties you to your fate. <laughs> Got a little fate in here too. <laughs> Pretty soon these images in my head grew faces or names and became characters. I find myself not only writing my own stories, but also writing about or from the perspective of people I've never met, people I've known, or those I wish I hadn't. An exiled man walking the bluffs of a land that isn't his own, wondering how it all went so terribly, terribly wrong. An embittered tormentor showing up at the funeral of his fallen object of obsession. A 17-year-old standing on a porch learning to apologise. Love-struck kids wandering up and down the evergreen high line. My grandfather Dean landing at Guadalcanal in 1942. A misfit widow getting gleeful revenge on the town that cast her out. A tale that becomes folklore is one that's passed down and whispered around, sometimes even sung about. The lines between fantasy and reality blur and the boundaries between truth and fiction become almost indiscernible. Speculation over time becomes fact. Myths, ghost stories and fables. Fairy tales and parables, gossip and legend someone's secrets written in the sky for all to behold. In isolation, my imagination has run wild and this album is the result, a collection of songs and stories that flowed like a stream of consciousness. Picking up a pen was my way of escaping into fantasy, history and memory. I've told these stories to the best of my ability, with all the love, wonder and whimsy they deserve. Now it's up to you to pass them down. (laughs) 
which is a beautiful piece of writing in itself. Yeah. Oh, someone's secrets written in the sky for all to behold. What a line. I know. I love that. I know, it's so pretty. The fact that now that she's writing from all these different perspectives, she's openly embracing lore rather than reputation means yeah. that you can be more open about your intentions, which mm-hmm. I think is like a nice irony. Yeah. Um, that like you can you can be more honest in fiction. Yeah. I also think it's interesting, like, I obviously don't know Taylor Swift as much as you do, but I always think of herself as writing about herself. Mm-hmm. But I like that on this album it sounds like, yeah, obviously her stories are in it, mm-hmm. but that she's writing about other people as well. Yeah, and, like, I think that shift, because she does normally write about herself, and I think that shift from, like, a single, like, quite controlling voice to, like, a medley of characters just brings me so much joy because while you can't control a reputation like other Mm. people assign that to you Mm -hmm. you can create new worlds and new voices and new characters Mm -hmm. and like as a writer that just really spoke to me (laughs) I think more than even more than all of our other albums which are lyrically brilliant but I feel like this has a more literary quality to it yeah now that I've kind of put it in context I'll be I'll be doing three episodes on this album. The first thing I want to talk about is one of its more kind of fully formed narratives, and Swift herself calls it the teenage love triangle, and it's just so well done that like <laughs> oh I love it I love it so much. So it's like this: there are three tracks all telling the same story. A teenage boy cheats on his girlfriend. He has a summer fling with another girl while school's out. It's very very simple, but the way that these three characters are given distinct different voices while telling the same story speaks so much to these ideas of like myth and folklore that we've been talking about Mm -hmm. so the way it goes is we have betty the girlfriend james who's her boy and the other girl who isn't named but i'll probably refer to as august girl because that's the name of her track fun fact these characters are named after blake lively and ryan reynolds daughters because they're all very good friends oh and there is a side character that i'm not going to talk about but there's a side character in one of the songs called inez which is the other one of their doors i never put that together um which i just think is really sweet also i think one of their daughters has like a vocal feature like where she shouts the word gorgeous on her track gorgeous from reputation oh that's so it's cute. just like a nice link yeah anyway So we get Betty's story first in track two, and it's the single that's been released called Cardigan. So the verse of that song begins, Vintage tea, brand new phone, high heels on cobblestones, when you are young, they assume you know nothing. And that refrain, when you are young, they assume you know nothing, is repeated throughout the song. The song, for me anyway, is essentially an anthem against the idea that to be young and in love is naive which is the idea that we're mostly presented with, Mm -hmm. because each chorus inverts that assumption, starting with the line, but I knew you. So she's saying, we were young, but this was real. And I feel like that gives her voice this, like, proper strength and, like, optimism that you don't often see from the victim of cheating or, like, the scorned woman. Yeah. And even the way that Betty frames James cheating on her has this kind of, like, wise beyond her years feeling. This is creates she uses cliches like a friend to all is a friend to none but rhymes it with chase two girls lose the one in my head this is betty looking back on the relationship a long time that's later. what i was going to say that because mm. i'm i have heard this song and i actually that's how i see it as someone like older looking looking back, back. Yeah. but i also feel like the betty that was there at the time was also kind of wise just like from lines like 
tried to change the ending, Peter losing Wendy. Yeah. So it's like this idea that she was always going to grow up. She was always on that path, whereas James is like immature. Yeah. Um, with that little Peter Pan reference. Yeah. And this whole like idea of youthful naivety versus like mature wisdom comes to a clash in the bridge when she says, um, I knew you'd linger. Oh, this is, I love this so much. <laughs> I knew you'd linger like a tattooed kiss. I knew you'd haunt all my what ifs. The smell of smoke would hang around this long because I knew everything when I was young. And I love that line so much because I felt like that. I felt like when I was a teenager, people were always telling me, you don't know anything. And it's really hard not to believe them yeah. when you do, you, you know yeah. your own mind. Yeah, exactly. Like, you might not know yourself. Like, obviously, <laughs> I can look back and be like, yeah, I, was, I did some dumb shit. Yeah. But, like. But you know how you feel. You know how you feel. Yeah. And I also love it because instead of painting her as this, like, scorned, bitter, like, rival or, like, a victim, it gives Betty so much power to, like, knowingly let yourself be hurt by love. Like, she's just such a resilient and hopeful voice. And she's really self-possessed. And it's really different to the usual archetypes that you get of, like, the nice girl in a song. So, yeah, ultimately, rightly or wrongly, it's Betty's resilience and her sense of her own worth that allows for some sort of reconciliation. Because the bridge ends, I knew I'd curse you for the longest time, chasing shadows in the grocery line. Love that line. (laughs) I knew you'd miss me once the thrill expired and you'd be standing in my front porch light and I knew you'd come back to me. You get the sense here that Betty was so, like, in love and so confident in her love that her certainty is, like, maybe what made her wait. Mm. Which you could spin that to be like, oh, that's a bit pathetic. Mm. But I like it because although she's really empowered in her choice to, like, risk her heart, she's also taken back someone that didn't treat her right. So she's not, like, this perfect model of, like, good decisions. Yeah. She just really loves this one boy. It makes it so specific. Mm -hmm. And that's conveyed through the hook of the song as well, which is also the last line, which is, and when I felt like I was an old cardigan under someone's bed, you put me on and said I was your favourite. So, like, Betty is the cardigan. She's She's been cast off. She's been, like, left behind and then rediscovered. And she's very familiar and comforting. And she's got this, like, perpetual softness. But she's not stupid. And she's not a victim, which makes her feel really three-dimensional. So, yeah, I love Betty and I love cardigan. Mm. I love the voice that's created here because it's not something that I hear a lot in like a cheating narrative and yeah so I'm gonna go on to James's song now which is the (laughs) last one that we hear and confusingly enough it's called Betty (laughs) so prepare for some contrasts buckle up kids um so this is this is James's narration as he tries to win Betty back so unlike the the Betty narration in Cardigan, you get the feeling this is meant to be at the time. This is not um, retrospective. Mm -hmm. So first I want to just take a minute to dwell on the ways that Swift lyrically links these narratives because we know that the Betty James is singing about is the narrator of Cardigan. And we know this because he explicitly says, I miss you standing there in your cardigan. Done. (laughs) Like, it's such a simple throwaway lyric but it's such a concrete image and she spent so much time on that image in Cardigan mm-hmm. that we immediately know this is the same girl. And we also have, I was walking home on broken cobblestones just thinking of you, which links back to that first verse of Cardigan, vintage tea, brand new phone, high heels on cobblestones. But more than just the concrete links, which I think are really clever, she links the songs and the characters by 
their contrasting refrains. So where Betty's was like a very wry, when you are young they assume you know nothing, but I knew you. James says, I'm only 17, I don't know anything, but I know I miss you. And everything about his song is made to sound youthful and innocent and nostalgic. It's a very upbeat track, it's got lots of happy sort of guitar picking and harmonicas and it actually kind of harkens back to Taylor's sound when she was a teenage country artist, so it's got like that deep nostalgia. Mm -hmm. Unlike Cardigan, which has very deep, soulful piano chords. So on the surface of it, James's song to Betty is just an apology, it's a classic like boy fucked up and he wants the girl back and it's got like quite juvenile lines like the worst thing that I ever did was what I did to you. It's got like quite a charming chorus where he imagines showing up at the door and he says, but if I just showed up at your party, would you have me? Would you want me? Would you tell me to go fuck myself or lead me to the garden? And in the garden, would you trust me if I told you it was just a summer thing? I'm only 17. I don't know anything, but I know I miss you. I love that because it's very cute and like a nostalgic, like, oh, teenage drama, like, (laughs) showing up at our party. (laughs) And like, I love the little, would you tell me to go fuck myself as well? Just just a nice little swear in a very innocent song. (laughs) But when you listen to it in conjunction with Cardigan, Swift kind of exposes, I think, the like the myth or the the lore of idealized innocent young love as false. Because mm-hmm. I I don't think that that's really a thing. <laughs> like I don't yeah. think you have like you can't just excuse hurt because it was young love. Like yeah. you can look back on it fondly and be like, oh, I'm I'm okay with it now. But the hurt at the time was very real. Yeah, and I think like. James's narration sounds really uncertain and it's full of questions to like reinforce his statement that I don't know anything. But he does know. He's 17, he knows fine well what he's done. <laughs> and he has to have known because Betty was old enough to know. Yeah. She was old enough to know everything. So I think that what I really love about the two different voices here is that their contrast speaks to deeper issues like the way young women are held to a different standard than young men, the way that young men get away with playing the I was young and stupid card but women don't get to do that and it's because it's absolutely not true like yeah, you, you weren't that young and you weren't that stupid again it's just like these two very different voices and on their own they're just good songs but when you compare them I just think that you get like this deeper narrative and I love that <laughs> but back to the actual story. Betty says in Cardigan, I knew you'd be standing in my front porch light. I knew you'd come back to me. And this is just a fun detail that someone on Twitter pointed out. But someone said this lyric comes at 3 minutes 13 seconds in Cardigan. And when it comes to James's song, at the same time, 3 minutes and 13 seconds, he says, Betty, I'm here on your doorstep. <laughs> Which... If it was intentional, that is satanic. <laughs> like, she has too much power. I don't I don't like that. But weird time and coincidences aside, we can see that the narrative does match up. Yeah. And although n- neither song confirms that they get back together, it's implied that they do, even though we as the listener, because we can hear both of their sides, we know that they have wildly different views of what's happened. Yeah. And that's what creates lore. That's what creates folklore. So the fact 
that they're the story is the same, but it's not depending on who's telling it. Yeah, is obviously, you know, that's the point. Three sides to every story. Yes, well, that's what I was just going on to say. <laughs> the story does not have two sides, though. It has three. It takes three people to make a love triangle. So far, I've skipped over the other girl, um, and she literally comes in the middle of the two tracks, which I think is a nice, mm. a nice touch. And she's been sidelined in the narrative of Cardigan and Betty. Notably, the song from James's point of view is called Betty, but the other girl doesn't even get a name. Mm. She's just referred to as her or just a summer thing. Right, okay. She's actually kind of villainised by James. She's not villainised by Betty. Interesting. (laughs) She's villainised by James who says she pulled up like a figment of my worst intentions. (laughs) And, like, that just really rehearses that old, like, fallen woman narrative of, like, a woman being able to seduce a man against his will. And I hated that. I was like, (laughs) James, you're such an arsehole. But, again, fair, like, good writing for making me hate him. Yeah. But Swift does give her a voice, too, in the track called August. And what's so striking about this is that, like Betty, the track, it feels very nostalgic. But unlike that track, it doesn't feel childish. The August girl is, like the Betty character, really self-aware but really vulnerable. And her hook is, I can see us lost in a memory. August slipped away like a moment in time because you were never mine. Side note, the next bit of that chorus says, August slipped away like a bottle of wine. And I just think that's an epic, epic line. <laughs> I just think it's really like clever. Anyway, she knows that James wasn't hers, quote-unquote. But she still falls in love with him anyway, and she falls in love with him completely. She has lines like, I never needed anything more in the first verse when they first meet, when it's like all exciting. Mm. But then by the second one, he says, um, this is my favourite one, you're back beneath the sun, wishing I could write my name on it. Will you call when you're back at school? I remember thinking I had you. So... Given that we meet Betty first in Cardigan, we'd kind of be predisposed to hate like the other girl and to think of her as an enemy. Yeah. But I really like this girl. Like she's just so she's so vulnerable, she's so hopeful, she's very like Betty. And she's really romantic. She says in the bridge Back when we were still changing for the better, when wanting was enough. And then she corrects herself. For me it was enough. To live for the hope of it all. Cancel plans just in case you'd call and say meet me behind them all. So much for summer love and saying us, because you weren't mine to lose. And that just breaks my heart. Yeah. (laughs) Because, again, she's not being treated very well. No. But she doesn't have any bitterness. She just, like, she just loves him. And that line, like, to live for the hope of it all, just gives so much depth to a character that's still unnamed. Mm Mm-hmm. So yeah, she's like she's not a sexual rival. She's like a person with hopes and like her loss is very real even if she was in a situation where it was always going to happen. Yeah. So where the default is to kind of root for James and Betty because their love is like morally sanctioned because they were already a couple. Mm-hmm. Part like part of me wants to root for the August girl because hers is like the untold story. Mhm. in in the main narrative if you like this is like a backdoor story and it just shows again like that depending on who's telling the tale like the heroes and the villains shift which is kind of what we found with Achilles and Patroclus like and your sympathies will shift along with them yeah so I think it's just such a great way to exemplify like the complexity and the beauty of the concept of folklore 
through a medium which Taylor Swift has always done, which is teenage love songs. Yeah. Like, I just I just love it. Also, personally, I think that Betty and the August girl should just ditch James and, like, fight crimes. <laughs> but, fight crimes. But that's just me. But yeah, I just, I think it's just so creative and it's not groundbreaking or anything. Like, the idea that you would employ different voices to create uncertainty or, like, mm-hmm. bias is not groundbreaking. But I just don't see it done in song with such, like, intentional storytelling Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So yeah, I'm going to talk a lot more about different facets of this album, but I just thought those songs group together so easily. Yeah. That um, I thought it was like a fun way to introduce just the way that this album's made up and all the concepts of, of folklore and character and everything that yeah. come into it. So yeah. I did wonder if, because um, I know you told me you were doing like a teenage like love triangle thing and I wondered if she had said if they were like already connected or if it's something people had worked out i um, think people worked it out but then she did confirm, confirm it. it that's yeah. really cool yeah, yeah so like it was i don't think anyway that she like decided i'm gonna write a, a love triangle yeah it's kind of happened i think like she wrote one and then she was like oh i'm gonna write the other person's yeah. um, view of this but i just love as well how the music um like you should just go and listen to it <laughs> the music in each one really reflects like the tone of each character as well and it just gives like so much depth to the idea of like how things change depending on who you are in the story but also how far away you are from the story Mm -hmm. if you're looking back or if you're in it at the minute or like yeah it's just it's just good stuff yeah that was so interesting i'm like if anyone doesn't know i'm not really a taylor swift fan at all like i i sort of listen to her through you because you're always listening to her in the flat but like cards again i love yeah i really love that song i now have that on like my spotify like it is a beautiful song yeah so yeah i'm interested to see what the rest of the album holds yeah um so yeah i think next week i will i'll be having a little feminist rant on the album um but yeah that that's that's an introduction to folklore for anyone (laughs) that cares cool well that was the first good like myth and folklore section yeah that went quite well same (laughs) I feel like we're just going to be repeating ourselves and being like, stories passed down are so cool. (laughs) But that's genuinely like what I'm fascinated by. So same. Yeah. How's your writing been going? My writing has been going quite well this week, actually. Yeah, you've been tippy-tapping away. I know. I have ended up cutting out, like, a huge chunk of my work out because it was starting to, like, veer in a direction that I liked, but I didn't think it made sense Mm. for the story. So I've had to cut it out. The word count is so much less, which is just so sad to look at when you know that you've, like, written more. Mm -hmm. But I'm happier with how it's going, so that's, that's like, that's a good thing. But anyway, my writing chat for today is just, like, a random tip um, that I've been using. And I think it might help those who really want to focus on character and establishing personalities and quirks and, like, understanding motivations and things. And that is by using astrology posts, like the one that CoStar posts on their Instagram. So I'll explain what that is in a sec, but my characters don't really have birthdays at this point because I don't think it really matters for mm. the story. But I went through CoStar's Instagram and looked at all their wee fill-in-the-blank posts and I was kind of trying to see what ones like suited my two main characters the most. 
And then once I found a zodiac sign that had like the most matches, like mm. the the kind of majority of answers, I like assigned that star sign to them. And the reason I did this is because I think it's a really fun way to build a character's backstory. So it's not like I have based my like entire character's personality on these posts, but like the silly answers just give me more of like a feeling for what kind of person yeah. she is. So like for example, my female lead had one that said the post was contradictions and her sort of fill in the blank answer was wants you to be obsessed with them but doesn't want to be smothered. Right. Uh, so what that does is it gives me a jumping off point for her character. I can look at that and think, does this fit with like the vibe I've already written for her? Mm-hmm. And in this case, the answer is yeah. <laughs> so I can then go ahead shaping like a scene or some kind of like running thread or whatever that includes that idea. Ah. Like another I found for her zodiac sign was worst nightmare. And her fill in the blank was absolutely screaming, but no one can hear them. Ooh. And this one was really interesting because it actually gave me an idea for a specific scene. Nice. Uh, so, yeah, like I said before, it's not like you need to shape a character around a zodiac sign. Like, no, but it's like but, it's like pre pre done personality traits. Yeah, it's just a fun way of like discovering some new quirks, maybe like maybe a bit of a backstory. Mm. It's not necessary to think about this much characterization if your work doesn't like warrant it. Yeah. <laughs> but for me, uh, for the work I'm doing, like character is such a focus, and I really need them to feel real. So, yeah, just a silly tip for anyone who's maybe <laughs> stuck with some characterization. That's that so can fun, though. Give you some ideas. Nice. I love that. <laughs> what is your tip this week or your your chat um my chat so obviously I just finished my master's this week so I'm finally gonna get back into my own writing which is great (laughs) and I didn't realize the link here to our whole myth and folklore chat until I sat down (laughs) but I've actually started like a new writing collaboration where me and the other person have come up with characters based on our own writing style Mm-hmm. So the idea is to tell the same story from two different points of view in two different styles. Mm-hmm. My style's a lot, like, very, very lyrical. And the other person's style is very, like, blunt and, like, sparse. And so their character is going to be shaped around having that voice and mine is going to be shaped around having a lyrical voice. Mm-hmm. A, like, it just works, it, like, fits in really well with this fascination that we've obviously collectively been having in this flat. <laughs> with like who tells the story and how that story goes Mm -hmm. but also I'm just excited about it because it's a departure for me like I usually write as myself or I write as a character that I can have a very similar voice to myself yeah so I'm interested to see how I find the writing itself and also if the two voices actually fit together or if it just reads like two different stories yeah but yeah I think it could like it's it's fun because it's an experiment so yeah, I, I guess my tip from that would be just like, if you're like in a rut, which I kind of have been, try collaborating with somebody. Like, I, I don't know if this will end up being a long collaborative project, because that's quite hard to do. Mm-hmm. But you can at least then really establish your ideas and then go off separately and film yeah, them out. Yeah, definitely. Which is, which is fun. Do you have a quick fire favourite this week? I do. I have a song this week. 
Nice. Which I have been playing a flat, so you probably have heard it. <laughs> but it's Kissophobic by Makeout Monday. Um, what, what a great title and artist <laughs> I know, combo. I know. So this song's quite hard to describe. It's got like a 50 swing influence. The music video for it is actually the Enchantment Under the Sea dance from Back to the Future. All right. It's got lyrics like, throwing the Cabernet back in a bright blue Cadillac, you're Marilyn Monroe and I'm James Dean's heart attack. Um, oh, I have heard you playing this. It's so good. Yeah, but as it continues, it gets a bit like more pop punk, maybe a bit more like emo. It's about someone who doesn't want to fall for someone because he knows he'll get hurt. So not like an original concept, obviously, but the tone of it's super interesting. So like I said, it's it's got like a, a 50s influence. So the song starts out quite chilled, and like a mm. little romantic. And it just like builds and builds and becomes more shouty and passionate. <laughs> but they do something which I love in a song, which is when it's super shouty and then it just cuts and the mm. bridge comes in all like soft and oh, I love that. And it's particularly lovely and heartbreaking. It just repeats, Now I can't get too close to you, my darling, can't get too close. And God help me if I do, you'll leave me broken hearted. And that just like slowly builds up to being really loud again. It's just a cool song. It's not even like that new, but it's new to me. Yeah. And I love it. And I just want to add before I ask for your quickfire favourite, I've made a playlist on Spotify for the songs that we mention on here. Oh, nice. It's called The Infatuated Mix. I'll leave the link in the show notes, like with everything else. I might have missed some, but I think I've got them all so far. Cool. <laughs> and I've included ones that we like mention in passing too, because mm. I just think like the more songs, the yeah. better. I will say though, don't think I'm going to add the entire Folklore album because I don't want it to take up the whole playlist, but no. you can pick a couple. <laughs> that I'm can not going to discuss there. all of them, so just put in the ones that I'm talking about. Yeah, so yeah, I'll add to it every time you mention a song. So if you're wanting to listen to any of the songs we mention, you can head there. Nice. So yeah, what is your quickfire favourite? My quickfire favourite you are already familiar with, but I think everyone should be. <laughs> um, and it is a documentary that me and Emily watched last night. Yes. And it is Dolly Parton, Here I Am. Oh, so good. It's so good. It was on Netflix. It's just an hour and a half and it's just 90 minutes of pure uplifting joyousness. It's full of really interesting little facts for like Dolly fans. I've read and listened to quite a lot about Dolly and I still found stuff I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's just really good. You get lots of her music, obviously. There's like talking head interviews with her Mm -hmm. currently, like last year. So it's all, it's like very up to date. And yeah, it's just like inspiring to see how she shaped her career from like the 60s and she's still going yeah it's just so like lovely yeah is the word i think of like everyone is just so nice about her like you cannot say a bad word about dolly parton no everyone just loves her but it's not like a it's not like cloying as a documentary it's like a very celebratory documentary but it's not like dolly propaganda it's just (laughs) it's just fun yeah and yeah i just figured that since this was the myth and folklore episode we should shout out someone that who who is more of a self-mythologizing legend than dolly parton yeah that's very true (laughs) 
Do you have a rant for this week? I do have a rant for this week. <laughs> I do. I have a, this rant, like the cookie rant, which we've had some good feedback on, thanks guys, has a title. Okay. And this rant's title is Missed Call. Okay. So the other day, I missed a call. And I missed it not by hours and not by minutes. I missed it by seconds. I was drying my hands, right, when I saw the screen of my phone light up with the glee and wonder of being used for its primary purpose, because it never is. (laughs) And so I lunged for the phone and my wet, unrecognisable fingertips slid impotently across the screen. And I could not drag the answer button more than halfway across. It's It's just such a humbling moment when that happens. And the call rang out. So I'm like, no bother. That's fine. I take approximately two seconds to dry the excess moisture from my hands. I call them back. And thanks to the wonder of modern technology, I did all that in under 10 seconds. Probably under five seconds. One could say, within the reasonable frame of human reflexes, instantly. (laughs) And do you know what what happened? Fuck all. (laughs) The call rang out. They did not pick up. Like, I know this is just me and my temper, but that in particular enrages me. Like, the red mist descends. Because I just think, how the fuck have you moved away from your phone at such a speed that you can now miss this return of the call? How did... How does that happen? So then you're like, I'm stuck doing like the awkward waiting dance because if I put my phone away and start doing something else, I'm going to perpetuate this ridiculousness. But if I try to phone them back again, I risk sending both of us right to voicemail. See, if you phone somebody, it's your job to stay looking at your phone for like a minute, right? (laughs) So I hang about in like digital purgatory for a few minutes. 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 Until eventually the person calls back and I say hello and they say, Hi, sorry I missed you. What's up? (laughs) You called me! And I'm like, so I'm like, I was returning your call. And they're like, all right. I was only saying hi, it wasn't important. As if like I'm the dumb one for calling back quickly. I'm like, how am I supposed to know it wasn't important? How am I supposed to know you weren't dying? Like, don't act all nonchalant with me now that I've returned your call. Like, ten minutes and three phone calls and your response is, I was just saying hello. (laughs) Send a text! (laughs) God, I'd like to apologise for Rebecca peeking everyone's headphones there. I would not, I would like to retract her <laughs> apology for maybe breaking everyone's headphones. <laughs> because if you're one of these people, you deserve to have broken headphones. Okay. Anyway, that's that's my rage for this week. I, I also understand that it's an overreaction, but oh my god. <laughs> do you have an insight for us this week? I do. I thought I would tell a little story about crystals today. Yay! And it's actually a personal story. Oh. So I don't collect crystals, but I do have one. And it's got a little interesting story behind it, or at least I think so. So I thought I would just tell that story today. So a couple of years ago, I was in, I think it was Padstow in Cornwall. And Cornwall has a lot of very like magical history anyway. Like I just love it so much. And we were in this little jewellery shop that sold crystals as well. And I got this little blue stone, which is blue topaz. 
it was like four pound mm-hmm. it was really pretty i just kind of saw it and was like oh i'm gonna get that so cut forward to getting home i look up the crystal and find out it's sometimes called the writer's stone and the weird thing about it is that I'd been writing all these blog posts about like visiting Cornwall. I'd been journaling for the first time in ages. I don't really journal that much. And I'd been doing some like creative writing as well. And I felt like I suddenly had all this inspiration that I hadn't had for ages. And I look up this crystal and apparently if you have it near you, it's meant to help you channel your creative ideas Spooky. into writing. It's meant to be great for like writer's block and stuff like that. So most likely a big coincidence but i still like to think there's like a little mysticism to the story yeah definitely um and it makes my like only crystal feel special so i'm definitely going to hang on to it and that is it that is my insight for today (laughs) if you see a pretty rock pick it up yes (laughs) maybe it will give you inspiration I have our question mm-hmm. for today. Today's question is, what's your favourite book title? It doesn't have to be your favourite book. Oh. I thought this was such an interesting question. <gasps> I have to think about this. Do you have your answer already? I do. And I I didn't think about it at all. I just like went off the cuff okay. with my instincts yeah. and wrote it down. So I, I, I kind of have two. I just really like bizarre book titles. Mm-hmm. So this book I bought in a shop without reading anything about it, just because I like the title, and it's yeah. called The Country of Ice Cream Star. Ooh. It's just such a mad title that I was <laughs> like, what? I'm yeah. having that. Um, and it is actually a really, really good book. Um, mm-hmm. So I'd recommend it. And the other one is this title just, I don't know, it speaks to me. Um, and it's Becky Chambers' The long way to a small angry planet. <laughs> and it just charms me. Yeah, that is a good title. Because I feel like, I don't know, I, I hear The long way to a small angry planet and I think, I could be a small angry planet. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, they aren't like particularly poetic ones, but I just, they make yeah. me smile. I mean, I do think one, I won't lie, is the song of Achilles. I just think it has a nice flow to it. Yeah. I'm going to try and think of another one so I'm not just talking about that book today. <laughs> Okay, I can kind of think of two for two different reasons. So one is just a series, a series of unfortunate events. Mm. What a title. Yeah, that is a good title. Like, that just makes you want to read it. Yeah. (laughs) And then two, I think, I think I might have to say The Starless Sea. I know I bring it up a lot, but I just feel like I saw that title when I was in, I think it was Waterstones, and I was like, The Starless Sea? Like, what does that mean? Like, Mm. what what do stars have to do with... Yeah, the sea as an all sea starless. Yeah, so I th- like, and it just I ha- like immediately saw it, and I was like, "That's an interesting title." What does that mean? <laughs> and picked it up. So I'd maybe say those. I think yeah. as well. Like I know this is a really cliche common one, but I think "To Kill a Mockingbird." Oh yeah, is a is beautiful a title just because it like rolls off your tongue. Yeah, that's true. I do love like a one title, like a one word title book as well. Like mm. you know, like Dracula, yeah, like Frankenstein, like all these. I thought about like... um Star Girl as well. Oh yeah, because um, that's yeah. like one of my favorite one word titles. Um, yeah, there's a bunch. There must be so many. Oh, even like one I just read, like um The Silence of the Girls. Ooh, it's a very good title mm. for a book. Yeah, there's so there's loads. loads. There's loads. That's what I'm struggling with, like as I'm writing. 
you know in your back of your mind you're always like what's the title for this like what yeah. am I writing that's what I struggle with a lot is <laughs> trying to come up with like a cool title I struggle with it a lot because I think like the title can frame so much of your tone yeah definitely like you're you could take the same book and you're may if you make the title a quote from the book that gives it like this like metatextual feel but if you make the title like the name of a character then immediately you're you know it's their story. Their story. Yeah. You can make the title like a place and then it feels like very, like it feels like it could spread out a lot. Like it yeah. feels like a big story that's yeah. a place. I always remember Eddie, like one of our creative writing tutors, like he loved if you had a title yeah. for like whatever you're reading out. He was, even if it was a prompt that you wrote in like five minutes, he would always be like, what's the title? Yeah. He's like, I like a good title. Yeah, I know. It's, it's good <laughs> practice as well for like focusing your own mind on what it is you're writing yeah definitely and like it's interesting as well because I do a lot of poetry a lot of the time I start with the title yeah because I'll think of a word and then yeah. I'll end up writing a poem that doesn't include that word but mm-hmm. I need that word to be the title then yeah like so my novel that I'm writing right now like I've literally just titled like the word document like the two characters names mm-hmm. it's just like blank and blank mm-hmm. but I don't like I don't think it'll stay like that but yeah. it, it reminds me like this is who it's about. Like, they're the ones that matter. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, mine is yeah. called, like, the central image yeah. of my novels yeah. so that I can remember, like, this is what I need to go back to. Yeah. But, like, I don't know if that'll stay. Mm-hmm. Titles, man. So interesting. I know. Thanks for the question. Are we done? We are done. Yeah. Nice. That was a good first episode in this little mini series. I know. Oh, I'm so excited to hear more about Greek myths. I know. I'm so excited to talk about it. <laughs> I just like to say, I know I've said this already, I'm so proud of myself for not crying. <laughs> I'm, ve- I'm very proud of you for not crying. <laughs> Rebecca can attest that there was tears in my eyes. <laughs> I'm very proud of myself for not like, I-, I think I gushed a little bit, but I'm very proud of myself for not gushing yeah. too much. Cause yeah. I could literally talk about the discography of Taylor Swift all day. (laughs) So be grateful that you only were subjected to half an hour. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) So we are back to weekly, yes? I think so, yeah. So we'll be with you next week, guys. Aren't you so happy? (laughs) That you you missed us, all like seven of you. That it's all you've been waiting for. (laughs) If you have any questions or comments or whatever, you can email us at infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com everything we talk about is in the show notes as always we have social media which is also down there the infatuated mix will be down there as well and that is us now done thanks for listening (laughs) Bye. bye